not so long ago, beloved listeners, I re-ran what I regard as the Old Testament of Al Clark, filmmaker extraordinaire. Well, tonight we pick up the story with his New Testament. The Old Testament was called Time Flies. The New E is called Times, Time Flies 2, that's T-double-O, and it's published by that valiant small publisher, Brandon and Schlesinger, who are to be commended for their characteristic good taste. Al uh, has talked about his childhood in Spain, his career in the music industry in London in the 60s and the 70s, and his um, transition to filmmaking, most memorably with his production of 1984. Come 1988, he moves to Australia, not his first trip, he'd been out here on musical matters. He's following his heart and he hopes to make a career for himself in our film industry, which by 1988 wasn't so much young as suffering one of its regular midlife crises. Having met him at the Cannes Film Festival, I was looking forward to seeing him again. And there, lo and behold, he was looking for money from the Australian Film Commission and the Film Finance Corporation to uh, get him off and running. But before we get stuck into that, Al, welcome back, of course. It's lovely to see you, well, son. Before we get stuck into that, has the film industry or the feature industry survived COVID? Or is the feature film now a sort of a, an antique artefact? It has survived, just but the landscape, I think, has, has changed markedly. It's very much a, a realm of, of groups and committees. And there was, a, there was a film released a few years ago, just pre-COVID, but it had 42 different kinds of producer on it, or 42 producers in all of different kinds. Some of them co-producers, some of them associate producers. And... There was a time when a film was just produced by. There were often, you know, maybe a couple of co-producers or one executive producer, but they were the result of focus and individual drive. And now they all seem to come from some kind of factory. You've had a sabbatical from filmmaking, not only because of COVID, but because you wanted to write your New Testament. If and when you go back into it, will you be looking at features or perhaps the long form required by Netflix? It would have to be something extraordinary to draw me back now because having just written about it, I'm familiar more than ever with the length of time, the extent of the effort and the tireless ingenuity and energy required to make it happen at all. So the first thing is you have to want it to happen a lot to make it happen at all. And until something comes that engenders that in me, I, uh, I probably won't. And besides which, I, I would probably feel uh, some resistance to joining teams and creatives and so on, <laughs> because um, there's something about such groups that I, I think kind of deflates... Uh, but you, you've always been a bit of a soloist, haven't you? Yes, yeah. Well, from, from childhood, um, where it was required since I, I lived in the middle of nowhere. But yes, I, I definitely walk my own path 
tread my own ditch. Well, let's let's look at that path in some detail now. You arrive in Australia, back in Australia, mm. in 1988 to rekindle your career. What did you make of the place at that time? It didn't seem to have changed that much from when I first visited it in 1979 and found myself being questioned by a doorman at uh, the Marconi Club in Fairfield about the weight of the cake that I had brought for the birthday of the drummer in case it carried a concealed weapon. Uh, Did it? Well, it didn't. No, it okay, I just want to clarify that. He, he verified it, and so I, I duly delivered my cake. But there was also a, a man at the time uh, called Larry Danielson, whose uh, nickname was, uh, I think, Larry the Larrikin. He, he was the promoter of a, a show they did at Flicks in Manly, uh, where the group you know, played one night, and then in the after party in Larry's apartment, where he sat under a, a framed crocodile skin and kept us practically uh, prisoners until sunup. I discovered a couple of weeks later that he was... Um, an extortionist. And uh, a couple of years later, with his partner in crime, planted bombs in um, country branches of Woolworths and then had another lined up for central <laughs> Sydney before his... Um, he was uh, he was discovered, I think, by the in a police operation in the harbour near Taronga Zoo. Um, <laughs> And after his eventual release from Long Bay, he, he went back to New Zealand where he, um, he died a few years ago. But I, I feel that with the, the combined <laughs> attitudes of the doorman at the Marconi Club and the encounter with the next promoter I met, Larry Danielson, Larry the Larrikin, I somehow was ready for whatever Australia had to offer. I can't imagine why you bothered to make Chopper when you could have made Larry. Indeed, yes. Well, Larry with an exclamation mark, probably. And then so, so when I arrived here and weird things immediately revealed themselves, much, much gentler weird things, uh, you know, such as Joe Bielke-Peterson refusing to leave his office after he was voted out of office. Sounds a bit pre-Trumpian, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. Um, the Frank and Susan Renouf business where they, there, was a, an extra, there was an estrangement going on, but it was being covered by both helicopters and journalists at the gate. <laughs> and then, of course, uh, seeing uh, Ernie Sigley and, uh, and Darren Hinch uh, being uncouth on morning television. And my conclusion was, hasn't changed much. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think being an outsider helped you when you were choosing or working on projects? Yes, and also my the, the strangeness of Australia and the curiosity that it engendered in me. I decided it wasn't really that, that strange. I mean, I, I mention those stories, but in fact it, it kind of invites you to, to explore and to go further. And when I decided the kinds of films that I wanted to make here, which were very specifically Australian, but with some chance of appealing to other places. I then became kind of intoxicated with, with travel in Australia. Um, the, the first film I did here, The, the Crossing, 
was made in in Juni and and uh, and Condoblin, the second in South Australia, the third in Broken Hill, Cooper Pedy, etc. So, um, I I became a traveller. You sound like a lonely planet guide on legs, really. Uh, I was, but uh, after the first recce, you always end up with several people, so you're never that lonely. I should point out that uh, the crossing starred a very young Russell Crowe, and he's just one of a number of uh, almost pubescent thespians whose careers you launched. Well, they had an opportunity to to shine, but they launched themselves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, OK. Now... You, as you say, your films jump straight into the landscape, many of them filmed thither and yon. How did you get to produce Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, which, of course, is the first thing that comes to mind when one gazes upon you? Really? <laughs> um, well, you have so come yes. in and drag. <laughs> the, um, I, I was asked to. My wife, uh, Andrina Finlay, was originally producing it and she took a job that uh, left the position vacant and we were all, she and I and, and the writer-director Stephen Elliott uh, in Los Angeles and they asked me, um, do you want to do it? And I took him to a, a drag bar, a Latino drag bar in, in LA, which I, I had visited before, I must confess. And... Um, it was fantastic because it was it was like family night. It was it was a drag bar, but it was full of you know men, women, and children, and they were all enjoying these you know south of the border classics being performed <laughs> by Mexican drag queens. But the highlight, and I think the one that finally convinced Stefan that perhaps he 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 was on the right track, even though he'd already written the script, was uh, a Mexican drag queen who sang Dion Warwick's I Know I'll Never Love This Way Again. It was just perfect. If you were casting Priscilla, or when you were casting Priscilla, there wasn't any pressure to cast the film with real drag queens or transsexuals, but there would be today. Uh, yes, possibly. Um, I mean, there was, for the Bernadette role, the one eventually played by, um, by Taron Stamp, um, we we did think of a few Australians, but the whole premise of casting that role was to be outrageous. You know, we, we were thinking about, you know, before Terence Stamp, there was Tony Curtis and John Cleese and uh, people like that. Um, because that was the kind of level on which the film operated. It wasn't uh, aspiring to be a documentary of authenticity. It was aspiring to be a really funny film. I and think we even asked... When you finish up with not only the remarkable Terence Stamp, who I will never forget in his debut performance in Peter Ustinov's uh, film Billy Budd, mm. but you had Hugo Weaving and Guy Pearce. Yes, Oh, they were they were extraordinary, and I, I could tell on the eve of shooting the film that they were going to be extraordinary because, on the final night in Sydney, we took the three of them, in drag to uh, a club in Oxford Street called uh, DCM, I think, and each of them, by being in drag, 
slipped into their roles. They, they were just three drag queens in a place. We weren't, <clears throat> apart from the fact that Bill Hunter came along as their bouncer, there was, um, there was no attempt to, uh, to turn them into uh, watchers. They were participants and they all responded according to character. I hope the doorman checked any cakes for, uh, for weapons. Well, that doorman didn't, because by then <laughs> weapons were out of the question. <laughs> OK, now let's look at Chopper, which was, of course, a breakout film for Eric Barner. How do you, on earth, do you go about selling a movie like this internationally, which is about an Australian crim who's uh, no-one ever heard of outside Australia? That was the potential obstacle, which is that every country has its own uh, notorious criminals, sometimes because they promote themselves and sometimes because they are really so remarkable that they, uh, they merit discussion. So here the challenge was why would anyone be interested in a self-styled Australian you know, hitman? And the answer was to contextualize it in their world. And so when I pitched the film to a British distributor, for example, on my way there, I realized that I couldn't do it the usual way. So I simply took a couple of films that they would know and said, it's about a guy who thinks he's in Goodfellas but he's really in the king of comedy. And in a moment, they just seemed to understand that it was a film about delusion, about self-glorification. It was about a guy who was in a world different from the world we saw him in. I think it's important to... Uh to clarify things for younger listeners, King of Comedy is one of my favourite Scorsese films, starring Robert De Niro as a well, a completely demented would-be comedian. Yes, yeah. He um, he's living in a in a parallel universe, and in that parallel universe, he he's really significant, and uh, such stories are are always intriguing because often. Um, you're being navigated through the film by somebody who is not in your world at all. He's entirely on his own. I was found it a huge challenge to get uh, my productions into the international market. I guess you did too. Well, we travelled all the time in those days. That was that was the most kind of interesting, abiding memory that I had as I was writing this. Incredible amounts of travel, not only with my appetite for um, Australian locations that were often difficult to get to and impossible to shoot in, but also my 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 taste for for visiting people because in 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 those days it seemed important to be in their company, to go into their office and to enter the world of the people that you were trying to absorb into it. Now Zoom has eliminated that compulsion. Um, I'm not sure if it's eliminated the need yet because I, I found that uh, out of those encounters came um, the film.
You make the point that uh, Australian films were treated as foreign films, but in English. Yes, quite quite so. I mean, culturally they were foreign, and you had to find a subject that uh, was either like science fiction. I mean, I'm sure that uh, Americans, for example, Priscilla would have seemed like science fiction initially, <laughs> but the the challenge was just to stay on your horse, as it were, as you, as you rode around. Uh, there was always going to be uh, uh, an obstacle, um, and, and fatigue was often one of them, and, and possible <laughs> loss of life as well, because I, 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 I flew into Los Angeles about 10 minutes after the Northbridge earthquake of 1992, the details of which are very amply covered in the book, and then I was on my way to Montreal in 97 when the worst ice storm ever to hit Quebec uh, hit the city. So it was paralyzed for a week or so while we um, interviewed actors in, in hotel rooms with no lights and uh, stuff like that. You're so, a bit of a troublemaker, aren't you, or a harbinger of doom? It does follow me from time to time, and I'm very, very grateful that I remain alive. The, um, there, w there was also an incident, by the way, just with a finished film, taking it to Paris and the aircraft about an hour and a half north of Sydney dropped from 36,000 feet to 10,000 in about 15 seconds because uh, the cabin had lost pressure and it had to cruise back to Sydney at 10,000, which I believe is the, is the highest height you can fly at when, when the cabin pressure has, has failed. And so about, I think, 50 people were taken to hospital that night. Well, this cabin hasn't lost pressure, and my <laughs> only passenger is Al Clark. This is Radio National, LNL, talking to Al about his... Uh, his brilliant career, going back to that notion of being treated as foreign films but in English, I'm suddenly having a flashback. It's a screening of Barry McKenzie in New York and I'd filled the theatre with every Australian in the town. It got them from the United Nations, everywhere. And they're all roaring with laughter before the film started. And I've got these American producers sitting in grim rose <laughs> looking and at the end of it one leans over and says remake it with Jerry Lewis and you got yourself a deal <laughs> <laughs> so that's what we did as you probably remembered much to the annoyance of, of Barry Crocker was the industry much different in the UK at that time than here it's it's different everywhere as a, part of it was to do with with uh, with travel proximity the other thing that I that I've mentioned, which is that there were just less people that you needed to persuade. Uh, there were singular people who who tended to run the show, and uh, as I say, it's, it, I think it's now much more of a collective. People are always talking about the team, for example. You know, I'll, t I'll, t I'll, I'll talk to the team about it. And the, the, French, then, the French auteurs would, would just be rolling in their graves. Or Luke Goddard, of course, has just recently entered his. Yes. Well, they, um, they still, in France, I would imagine, still have to deal with a team because the business is, is run by teams now. Is it simply a factor of that film is so damned expensive and needs a mosaic of investment? 
that's a, a, a telling factor in um, in determining whether something's makeable or or not. Um, th that's probably also a great factor in, in the number of producers because now instead of viewing themselves as distributors because they put money into the making of it, they become producers. But yes, I, I think it's a, it, it's a more complicated process now because uh, where you have so many people sharing the power of, of veto and approval, it follows that it will be more complex to get a direct answer. And of course, the propositions in films, or indeed in uh, long form, mm. are researched to death before production begins. Does that make success more reliable, more predictable? On the contrary, it, it just all the energy is used up on crystal balls, is backed up by figures, do, of is course. Is that how they do it? No, they they work out what's you know what's the market for this, who are the potential consumers, etc. No, I'm sure they apply scientific methods, but I thought I was thought it was owls on trails, but that's. Uh... <laughs> I I just I find it all kind of bewildering. I I um, I just tend to I think perhaps because as a as a relatively solitary producer. Uh, I know that my next year and a half, if not longer, is going to be tied up with a particular project, occasionally overlapping. I'm very, very conscious of the fact that I won't start unless I'm uh, pretty convinced I'm going to finish. It's interesting, isn't it, that whilst you and I both had a pretty good hit rate, most of our films did OK, we inevitably had our failures, and yet... I like some of my failures better than the successes. The failures are, are to be cherished in many cases because they were um, they were anomalies. They were they had uh, something unique that at that moment in in the public's world uh, did not hit the spot, or they were distributed badly by people who didn't understand what had really been achieved. But, but you're proud of everything you've done, aren't you? Completely, yes. There's, there's, uh, there's hardly anything... He's all flop. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah. Because you don't do it unless you have uh, conviction, and conviction tends to eclipse other considerations. Self-delusion is a bit of a problem after the event, but I don't believe I've suffered from that. You know, predictability... We talked about King of Comedy. That was Scorsese with De Niro, and, of mm. course, they were regular collaborators and it had huge success. And here's a film with De Niro, with Jerry Lewis at the height of his uh, powers, total and utter flop. Yeah. It, it just had a very uneasy tone about it. It was... Um, I always remember the, the, uh, the writer of uh, The King of Comedy, Paul Zimmerman, uh, used to talk about how it was rather that he was asked what he thought of the film itself in the end, and he said it's rather like having a baby that looks like Martin Scorsese. <laughs> 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 <So>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Is it true that you want to go back to Spain? I will go back to Spain next year um, because I have a, an important birthday and one that I want to share with the people I grew up with, and the people I grew up with are in Spain. 
So get back to Spain, but probably not back to the movies. Well, that's a shame, Al. Not Spain, the mm. movies. Their loss. I've been talking to Al Clark, film producer extraordinaire and author of quite a few books, including, I should remind myself and and the listener, a wonderful book on Raymond Chandler because you're into film noir, aren't you? Yes, very much so, and into his writing in particular. Al Clark, the second part of his autobiography, his uh, New Testament is called Time Flies 2, published, as I said, by Brandel and Schlesinger. G'day, potties. If you like discussions that get beyond the headlines and help you make sense of the big trends in business and politics, check out uh, Saturday Extra with my colleague Geraldine Doog on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>